0: Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross. This is our Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast number 7B of the 2022 hurricane season. This episode is the second of a two-part podcast commemorating the 30th anniversary of Hurricane Andrew with two very special guests, both heroes of that unimaginable time. In the first part, episode 7A, we talked with Dr. Bob Sheets, the infatigable director of the National Hurricane Center at the time of Andrew. His is an incredible story of determination, skill, and bravery. I couldn't have done my part in Andrew without Bob's work at the Hurricane Center. In this episode, I'll talk with Kate Hale, who became famous for her audacious statement three days after the storm, criticizing the relief efforts that were leaving people without help and support. Kate became famous for saying, Where's the cavalry on this one? Where's the help from the federal government? And she said a lot more. The story behind that critical moment is coming up with Kate Hale here in just a minute. I'm recording this on Sunday, August 21st, 2022. 30 years ago tomorrow at 5 a.m., Andrew became a hurricane with winds estimated at 75 miles per hour. We still didn't think it was likely to come near Miami at that point. But it made landfall two days later as a Category 5. It's scary to think about that even today. I hope you're following the Andrew Timeline as we look at the advisories and the story day by day. It's on FoxWeather.com and on Twitter and Facebook. Just Google Brian Norcross and you'll find it. It's been pretty mind-blowing, honestly, looking at the satellite pictures and the bulletins from 30 years ago, 1992. Now, this year, the tropics are crazy quiet. It's getting weird, honestly. It's a rare year in the past 40 that has had less activity to this point. We'll see if the long-range computer forecast models, which predict there will be more going on around the end of the month, are right. So for now, we wait, which, of course, is a good thing. So let's take a break, and I'll be back with my conversation with the former Dade County Emergency Manager, Kate Hale, in just a moment. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. And, of course, what you think.
1: Listen live or get the podcast now at Brian show dot com.
0: Hi, Kate. Thanks for being on. Hey, Brian, how are you? All right. It's great to see you. It is. So
1: let's think
0: back to that time before, Andrew, which is kind of hard, I know, uh, after all these years. But how was your job and uh, the emergency management resources you had different than what an emergency manager in Miami-Dade County would have today? I know Andrew changed emergency management uh, tremendously.
1: Um, it, it was just light years different. It's hard to believe how very different it was. We were in an old concrete bunker. Um, I had, I think, six staff people. There were seven of us all together. Um, the community never thought it was going to have a hurricane again. You know that. You you were out there preaching the gospel of hurricanes as well. And you know, it was not infrequent to hear policymakers and people who could have made a difference say, "We don't have hurricanes here anymore." Um, 80% of our population had never been through a hurricane. Being prepared for a hurricane was not something they really thought they needed to uh, do a lot of investment in. The technology was different. If you remember back on the forecasting, we didn't even have a cone then. (laughs) And it was just a very, very different world. There was a lot of out of the box thinking, a lot of finding the training and the resources we needed on our own and that goes for most emergency managers along the hurricane coast then very different now
0: yeah so i i was um uh, i came to miami in 1983 and through the 80s i mean it just wasn't something that people talked about on january or june 1st you didn't get you know that kind of Mm -hmm. angst that people get today that hurricane season is uh, is starting again. It, it, you know, yeah. uh, the months came and went uh, without really a big thought. And the assumption was, I guess, if a storm did come, you know, how bad could it be?
1: And remember Dr. Gray out there warning us that these were decadal and eventually they were going to come back with a vengeance, and mm-hmm. they did.
0: And they did, yeah. So let me take you through the, uh, the few days before Andrew. So four days before Andrew hit as a Category 5, it was a disorganized 40-mile-an-hour tropical storm, and we thought it was kind of aimed toward central Florida or out to sea or, or someplace else.
1: Yeah.
0: I was talking to, to Bob Cheats earlier and asked him what he was thinking at that point, and uh, you know, both of us agreed we weren't really thinking much about it. Did, were you doing anything different at, at that point, or was it just pretty normal? <laughs>
1: Yeah, typically, especially as we got into the peak of hurricane season, I would go to the hurricane center for the one o'clock map readings. Mm -hmm. And Andrew had started to strengthen and then it weakened. And then it started to strengthen and it weakened. And therefore, being able to get a good sense of where it was going to go was was very different. And there was the possibility um, that there was going to be an opening, a a cell open up, and then that would have... taken the storm north you know fairly well east of the Bahamas exactly and so we were looking at that to happen because so often that had happened Mm
0: -hmm. it was
1: really late on it was really on Friday when you know I'm I'm over there saying tell me why it's not going to hit us
0: yeah well yeah so so Thursday yes Thursday was just a tropical storm it was one of those Tropical storms out there. So that's, so that's like four days before landfall, right? I mean, mm-hmm. as we think back on it. And um, so it's which is a kind of bizarre thing.
1: All right, Actually, then- I, got a I got a call from Billy Wagner. Um, wow. Probably about five in the morning, saying I'm I'm on my way up. Uh, Meet me at the Hurricane Center.
0: Yeah, Billy Wagner, the famous emergency manager for many years in the Florida Keys, uh, Keys. and um, a a great uh, great hurricane preparedness advocate. uh, If ever there was one for many decades. Uh, So uh, Friday, it, it becomes a tropical storm, a full fledged tropical storm. But still, the the forecasts are aiming north but we didn't really necessarily believe the forecast, right? If it was coming toward Florida, uh, it was something to start thinking about.
1: Well, and and you you were there, you know how we Mm -hmm. planned then. And we knew when our drop dead point was, how long it was gonna take us to get ready, how long it was gonna take to mobilize the public under different circumstances, and when we'd be out of time. And that's really how we projected our start times. And we were getting very, very close to a point where we needed to warn the public, we needed to take action, Mm -hmm. uh, and we needed to start mobilizing uh, government resources as well and getting all of that into place. And yet, you know, it was blue sky. um, And if you remember the Hurricane Center at one point said, uh, listen, have a nice weekend, tune in again on Monday. And um, Billy and I basically just, kind of went blowstick on that one, but we got on, you know the county went on and, and the media was wonderful. you were wonderful. getting everybody information that this could hit, that they needed to be ready, um, that there wouldn't be any um, any margin if they didn't start taking action now.
0: Yeah, so that that late Friday afternoon, it was because it was the weekend, actually, that I started Mm -hmm. talking about it. If it had been Tuesday, I probably wouldn't have done it because the forecast really was not for it to come anywhere near us. So then on Saturday, then it's a hurricane on Saturday. It's still not forecast, actually, Saturday morning. It's still not forecast to come to South Florida. Uh, so on Saturday, did you go out to the Hurricane Center and, uh, for oh, the yeah. briefing and, and so forth? Uh,
1: like okay, long? we mobilized the EOC, brought in staff, briefed all the officials, did everything that we needed to do to get all of what we had in place and ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, activated the EOC with the partial staff, with the full staff coming in later. And uh, initially it was for a Category 3, if you recall, and it wasn't until Sunday morning they called us back about mid-morning Once the public had been told, okay, it's heading our way, you need to take action now. Um, And if you remember our evacuation zone at that point between a category three and the combined uh, four and five evacuation zone was almost double the population. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people didn't hear that because they were already out getting supplies uh, to be prepared, and they did not hear that it was going to be that much worse. That there were so many additional people who needed to take action.
0: Yeah, I mean, we really—I mean, it was horrendous and beyond horrendous for South Dade. But I mean, we really were really lucky that the storm surge sort of did not come into the population centers of. of
1: uh, yeah, the, know, the, the boat Hurricane boat Center told like, me that that Andrew hit. On the, at the single point on the east coast of the United States where it could do the least amount of damage to the fewest people. It was,
0: uh, yeah, it was really a stunning, so, I mean,
1: it would have thing. been magnitudes greater had it hit even 10 or 20 miles uh, north of where it did.
0: Yeah, yeah. 10 miles would have made all the difference. So most people in South Florida didn't become aware of this potential threat until... Saturday and some until Sunday. I mean, Sunday was really the preparation day, right, for a storm that hit Sunday night. I'm sure your office was deluged with calls from people. I mean, I imagine it was just like overwhelming to have everybody pretty much in shock that this suddenly this hurricane was a threat. Is that what you remember?
1: Well, it is, we were overwhelmed with calls and we had a hurricane hotline and they just couldn't keep up with the volume of calls. But you know, you talk about the differences between now and then, Uh, people take it for granted. We have cell phones, we get texts all the time. We all have weather alerts. We have alert warning systems um, that government can issue messages over. So um, our ability to alert and to warn people and to keep them up to date on information um, it, it's just unbelievably uh, different now. We had little to work with. It was media. It was TV. We were relying in on media. Yeah, yeah that media was, it really. was part of the team.
0: Yeah, yeah. So your office, you you mentioned this. It was that uh, old uh, civil defense bunker in suburban uh, Miami, out in Kendall. I have I have uh, memories of meeting you in that place before oh, Andrew yeah. for the. The two and a half years before, Andrew, that we talked about uh, hurricanes so much, it was kind of crowded and small, right? I mean, and I, as I recall, there wasn't really a good place for the media to come and hang out and, and, you know, attend briefings. How was it for you and your staff to work there on a regular basis?
1: Well, it was claustrophobic uh, at best. But the, the other thing is that we did, um, from the time I took over, I, got, I managed to get— um, some money together from dis- different sources to be able to build a, a press room and a conference room for leadership. So they could come in, they could be brief, they could um, ask questions and make decisions without being in that fishbowl that the actual operations center is. And we had the same thing for the media. Um, so the media at that point did have something to work with um, it wasn't adequate by a long shot, but it was better than what we'd had a few years ago. And as you know, we had a pool camera situation and you all shared the video out of the EOC and the updates. Um, but it was it was primitive compared to what I'm sure is there now.
0: Well, the thing uh, that we had, and you reminded, just reminded me of this, is we had a dedicated microwave link yes. to both the Hurricane Center and to the old Civil Defense Center there, the Emergency management office uh, in Kendall. That's right. I had forgotten about that. In fact, I think it linked through the Hurricane Center, if I remember, uh, for us to get it. so that's yeah. how big a part what you were doing there was to the and fundamental to the coverage because um, you know we we had that that continuous link, although in the Andrews situation, we had so many crews in the field. what I remember about that. Sunday leading up to it that, that there, you know, we didn't staff emergency management, your office, like we normally would have right. because it was such a, you know, a monstrous thing. And, and uh, just staffing the, the crews to go out and cover the news was such a, a difficult.
1: But thing. we did have coverage right. and um, we were getting the message out there. And I think it's invaluable when you think of what those crews out in the field um, sort of amplified the message. People saw them. They knew that there was a story here. There was a big story, and hopefully that um, that urged a few people to take action that might not have.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's no question about it. Well, what do you what do you remember about the night of the storm? When was the last time you slept before the storm hit?
1: Well, um, I don't remember exactly the time. I think it was probably about nine o'clock. Um, eight or nine o'clock, we had our final uh, news briefing from the Emergency Operations Center telling people to stay where they were if they hadn't evacuated, conditions were deteriorating rapidly, it was no longer safe, and they needed to hunker down where they were and we would be back with them as soon as we could in the morning and see where we were um, but not to take any risks and try to evacuate if they weren't already on the road on their way out of the evacuation zones. It was backed up, there was terrible traffic, and uh, it just wasn't feasible at that point for them to get out prior to the arrival of the tropical storm form wind, storm force winds that we knew would be taking down power lines and trees.
0: Right, and that was, we forecast that nominally. for. So we night, did so. that,
1: and then if you remember that old EOC had that, bomb blast door. <laughs> right. And nobody remembered that bomb blast door ever being closed. We had interior doors they locked. We had a security system. The bomb blast door was so heavy, um, it just was never closed. And at that point, um, essentially, uh, we'd locked the gates and the screen was all up on the breezeway that we had at the be- at the entrance of the building. And we literally had to go and peel some of the guys off the fence. They just didn't want to come in. They wanted to stay there and watch it. Mm -hmm. Peeled them off, got them back in the building. And for the first time in decades, that bomb blast door was closed. Once that happened, we couldn't hear a breeze. We couldn't hear anything. It was Mm -hmm. really like being in a tomb. And the tension among the people who were there because they weren't with their families. They all had families at home. Um, We knew we had hours and hours ahead of us uh, where we weren't going to be able to do anything. We didn't know how much information we were going to be able to get back from the community. Uh, Again, the radio systems and the towers and the satellites and antennas were all much more vulnerable then than they are now. And eventually, we lost all communication with the outside, and it was not a, a comfortable place to be. Absolutely no sense of what was going on out there, no communication whatsoever with the exception of some of the landlines. And usually that was because somebody was listening to their family scream and cry on the other end of the line as their house came apart around them. And there you'd have, you know, a firefighter. Uh, We had an official from Florida Power and Light who walked into my office with tears in his eyes and explained to me that he'd been talking to his wife on the phone. The girls were crying and screaming, and the phone went dead. And he said, I know they're dead. I know they're dead. I mean, the guy was an absolute mess. But so was just about everybody in the EOC that night.
0: Yeah, because, uh, I mean, just to reiterate, that was built for nuclear war in the 50s, as I recall, right? That's what the building was actually there (laughs) for. So... So they had this massive door that would sit there open and you would, and then there was another door inside that that would be the normal entry yeah. door. So when I went, that door was always, the, the big door was always
1: yeah. there open. The door was always open. It looked yeah. like you would see in the movies yeah. a bank vault or something right. It had the big wheel and yeah. everything yeah. else that you had to crank to get it to move. Right. Yeah. And,
0: and I, I heard the story and actually I, I had a couple of people have told me this, uh, but I've never asked you this story. That, that there was some kind of overflow of the 911 system or the hurricane hotline or something that went into your office. So somebody was was there at the time. Told me that they would pick up the phone and it would be some some citizen, you know, that was that, and then and yeah. they you know try and solve that problem and they're trying to get an outside line and they. would hang up the phone and And then then pick it back up and be somebody else on the line. You couldn't really get get out because of that overflow that had been set up. You know, nobody ever thought there would be this level of incoming calls to the EOC, I guess, or to the emergency management, or to Hurricane Hotline, or the 911 system.
1: Yeah, it was a hard sell. It really was. The whole Mm -hmm. building needed to be completely replaced, and the communications capabilities for a community that size increased by a magnitude of probably 50. I and mean, it yeah. was not a system set up to handle uh, 1992 Miami-Dade County.
0: Yeah. So when did you become aware of the tremendous devastation and, you know, beyond devastation, just the, the heartbreak and the angst and terror in the southern part of the county?
1: Well, I did get a call in the middle of the night um, from uh, Miami Dade South Campus, they were a shelter. That building was used as a shelter, in and Kendall,
0: the know, one off the Turnpike, yes. in Kendall uh-huh. on a, a and At,
1: on 104th and 104th, I think 112th. Right. Um, but but that facility and whoever was managing the shelter didn't follow the plan. The plan was to use interior hallways that didn't have windows and were safe and protected. Instead, they opened up the gymnasium, which of course we would never use because it has high span ceilings and a high roof and very open and very vulnerable and as the storm started to move to, to worsen at about three in the morning, um you know the building is is kind of doing this, mm-hmm. and they're terrified, and people are screaming, and they called and said, "We think this thing is coming apart. What do we do?" And I said, at this point, all you can do is get everybody into the hall. Um, there are lockers on the in the hallways. If you have to bust them open, bust them open and put the children in the lockers, and then you know the adults up next to the lockers against the walls. And they finally apparently got everybody uh, moved out. And there was damage to the building, but there weren't any injuries there because people had been re- re- relocated where they were. But at that point. We knew that things were really, really bad um, for that to occur, Um, and that just coincidentally was a few blocks from where I live. So, you know, I pretty much figured my house was severely damaged at that point as well. But we knew at that point that it was uh, worse than we um, well, not worse than we expected. We expected it to be horrible. We really
0: because we knew it was a super strong hurricane. We knew it it was a super storm, and we've been preaching that. You
1: know, if if a major hurricane hits an urban coastal community, um, how devastating and catastrophic this Mm -hmm. is gonna be. So we were expecting the worst, but that's when we kind of had a sense of how severe the damage was at that point in the county. Um, And then of course, as we got into the, as the day began to lighten up, um, it was basically uh, law enforcement, Miami-Dade Police Department and other police departments that were, uh, and firefighters down there who were going out, trying to find out what was going on, do windshield survey, surveys and send that information back into us. Mm-hmm. And all we're getting are these kind of strange messages about they were having trouble describing what they were seeing.
0: Yeah, it and for figuring so out where they were, I talked to firefighters complete. and policemen that,
1: yeah. that lived and that, there
0: and, and couldn't tell what corner they were on.
1: No, they couldn't. Um, yeah. All the signage had gone yeah um
0: and the trees and landmarks and and everything else it looked like a completely
1: county lost more signage in one night than the country normally produced in a year it took a long time if you remember Mm -hmm. to be able to replace all the street signs and uh road signage that we all take for granted every day um but they didn't know where they were um we didn't have gps on our we didn't have the phone so we didn't have gps we didn't have a lot of that information But people were beginning to crawl out of the rubble and look at what was left. And as you know, and the the miracle of Andrew is that it was as fast as it was because had it slowed down at that intensity, those people who were left alive to crawl out of that debris that had collapsed on them, they wouldn't have made it. Those buildings would have suffered uh, much more damage and our fatality rate would have gone much, much higher. But they were being... uh, being advised to just kind of stay put until they could communicate with us, and it was the same message from everywhere. People are in shock. People are walking around, you know, with their jaws open. They they can't believe what they're seeing. Um, everything is destroyed, and nobody can make a call. Nobody can tune in a radio station. Of course, TV was gone. There was literally no ability to communicate with them whatsoever.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that uh, the next day, if somebody didn't have a, you know, a, a portable radio that survived, there really was no way for them to call out um, because unless, you know, sometimes there were some landline phones, it seemed like every block had one or something, a landline yeah. phone that, that worked. But uh, but really the problem was it took time to figure figure that out. So. Those days after our, it, go ahead, Ken we go over started getting
1: calls in. We yeah. started getting calls in then from those few landlines that were functional down right. there. And even with so little communications, our system was overwhelmed and crashing. Our nine eleven or our nine one one office was overwhelmed it kept going down mm-hmm. we couldn't process requests they were literally sometimes six and eight hours behind in terms of the backup and what their capacity to receive the calls was
0: and also people couldn't get into work so whoever whatever the next shift shift at 911 uh, was going to be uh, you know same thing happened at the airport same thing happened in the shelters right you okay. couldn't get the next shift in because their their homes are destroyed or the the roads are blocked or uh i mean that was a that was those next few days were just grueling i know for you and for everybody i mean how do you describe that could could you go home and and what did happen to your home did you get any sleep at all you know in those
1: oh i I mean i just stayed at the office for for a long long time it was probably two or three days before uh probably about three days before i saw my home and there were no communications going on and so i really didn't know what to expect when i got home and it was um, pretty much everything was destroyed or damaged severely damaged the whole neighborhood Um, and that that was that and i felt lucky i almost felt guilty because I had already been to South Dade and saw how extensive their damage was. Yeah. So I still had walls that there. were up. Yeah. Um, my tile was all off my roof, but my roof wasn't leaking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the shutters, we had a microburst hit my neighbor and it just, the shutters blew off of my house on all sides simultaneously, just this big. Wow. It just sucked them out. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there was a lot of damage from all of that. Um, Swimming pools destroyed, fence, trees, everything else, but the walls were up. Mm -hmm. And I felt so guilty that I had so much at that point when I thought about everybody else and what I had just come from in South Dade.
0: Yeah, you know, I wrote exactly that in my book. I mean, I, I lived in Coconut Grove. And, you know, my house was intact. Yes, there was damage, some roof tiles were off, and of course, all the landscaping was gone and and so forth. But as I was out there later that week cleaning up the landscaping, you know, uh, and my house was four miles from the hurricane center. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. how close it was to, uh, you know, they had winds there on the roof at uh, 164 measures. Took
1: off their satellite dish, remember?
0: Yeah, the radar blew off the, the dish. Hey, Brian here. I'll be back with former Dade County Emergency Manager Kate Hale in just a moment. So that... Famous Thursday morning, three days into this devastation and chaos and and just horrendous situation, a reporter, it was uh, Craig Stevens, uh, asked you the question, yep. and it feels like you'd had enough. And, and you said, where's the cavalry on this one? D- did you well, know you were going to say that? Did you? Oh,
1: no, no. In fact, you, what had happened is, if you remember the night before, there was the Larry King show, and there was this interview um, about he started out with why weren't we doing anything to help the people of dade county he heard that nobody had anything there were no lights on and he didn't have a sense of he was talking about things that related more to inconvenience Mm -hmm. um but he was coming at the county really hard about why weren't we doing anything to help these people and i'm trying to explain to him the extent of the damage as we know it now and what we're doing and the requests that we've made and um then they cut to the Red Cross and the Red Cross said they had 118 shelters or something like that, which was you know, never, ever close to what we had, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I had to, at that point, come back and say, they're not here. Mm-hmm. We don't have that here. And this is what's happened. And we are trying to get resources in and we don't have communications. We can't ride around. We're moving around by helicopter, essentially. Um, And explain that to him. So by the next morning, we had spent a night with people from Dade County government, the Dade delegation, um, uh, members of the congressional delegation at the EOC. They are making calls trying to get resources in, trying to get help. Mm -hmm. They are all being told the same story. Dade County has not requested the help and we were begging and we had been for days and we'd been sending information to the state and the state claimed they were sending it on to the federal government. The federal government was saying they weren't getting it. So at this point we knew we had to do something to make, to set the record straight and make it very clear what our situation was and how desperately we needed resources to, to come in, how desperately, uh, vulnerable, the population in South Dade was. We didn't know. They didn't have communications. We didn't know if they were tr- if they knew we were out there trying to help them. We didn't know how to get them to resource centers, et cetera, et cetera. We had people in very, very serious health conditions, small children, people dehydrating. If you remember, it was just unbelievably hot and humid those first days. Yeah, so after that's amazing. is. We're
0: three whole days now. We're talking seventy-two hours of of really no assistance and beyond 72 hours by the time of the news conference there Thursday morning.
1: So um, I'd pretty much been handling all the media at that point for the mm-hmm. county, which was not something that the plan included. It was to be handled by other people who didn't show up. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up handling the media. Um, and so I was you know, tapped to go ahead and make this message clear um, in this press conference that we needed help Um, and what we'd been doing and the kind of situation we were facing. And I thought it was over. I thought, you know, the camera stopped and that's when somehow or other, the 10 second sight sound bite (laughs) blurted out. Um, And it's just, I'm so glad that it did because that seemed to be what caught people and that seemed to be what echoed and helped helped bring in the resources that we were so in need of.
0: Yeah, watching the tape, uh, it feels like you're hesitant at first and then you kind of get going, right? Once you yeah. made the statement, then it was like okay, I've done it, now I'm really going to make it stronger and make it stronger and make my point and, and, uh, uh, and it did. It, it broke the logjam and, you know, all the way to the White House and President uh, George W. Bush at the time, or George um, H.W. Bush. H.W. But, yeah. yeah. Um, at the time, you know, essentially thought this is not good politics to whatever the, the, the bureaucratic issues are, and he picked up the phone to the Defense Department and said, you know, whatever it takes, get the Army in there, and eventually it happened.
1: And he did that, and at the same time, simultaneously, he uh, implemented something called We Will Rebuild and put, if you remember, Alva Chapman in charge of that. So there was the military effort. There was at the same time this um, coalition of community business leaders who were coming together under Alva Chapman's leadership to begin looking at, at marshalling all of the local, industrial, economic, government, other any resources that were out there that weren't part of the governmental effort kind of came under that umbrella. And so those two parts came together and things started uh, to take shape in terms of having a real response.
0: Yeah, Alva Chapman was the former uh, publisher of the Miami Herald, was a great Miamian, and and that we will rebuild charity um uh, I mean raised tens of millions of dollars for uh they people did. suffering in the southern part of the county well when did you come to understand just how important that moment was and you know w- that was one of those hinge points in the in the direction of of things was was it kind of immediate or did it take time well, before you really really first kind of, of set up
1: i mean i had um I had always been a good second in command. I w- I didn't ever expect mm-hmm. to be kind of the person out front. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't slept basically in 5 days. Mm-hmm. And the th- the 3 days before that, you know, they were truly a living hell as we were struggling to mm-hmm. try to help people. And and, and trying to deal with a political logjam that seemed to be occurring because we were caught in the middle of a presidential election as well.
0: And um, you had uh, Lawton Charles was the governor of Florida was a strong Democrat. And of course, it was a Republican administration and, and Charles was supporting Bill Clinton. And uh, I mean whether, you know, that was never overtly part of it, but I think we all thought that. that well, we
1: were told very specifically that there, that part of the problem was that um, people, you know, people in the campaigns were, sab- or at least in one campaign, they were basically sabotaging us to make lot and child's in florida look bad Um, and i don't know whatever happened i don't know what was true and what wasn't true Uh, there are all sorts of theories and conspiracies and conjectures Um, and in the long run it didn't matter we just needed it to stop and i think i said that in the statement we just need you to all stop playing games and sort sort those things out later we need get us the help we need now um but we had i mean there were no shortages of powerful people who had been in that eoc trying to resolve things if you remember i think the day before that the night before that alex muxo um, from homestead the city manager of the city of homestead which was so devastated had gone on cnn and literally cried on cnn begging Mm -hmm. the president to do something so this this really that Statement was the culmination of, of seventy-two hours of, of pure exhaustion and effort and frustration and not getting anywhere. So when did I know? I figured that um, you know I kind of was less than diplomatic at that point because I was exhausted, and I went back to my office basically and called my staff in and said, I have just made an awful lot of powerful people very angry. Um, I expect to be fired before the day ends. And this is what I need you to do when I go. You take over this, you take over this. I don't want you to uh, make a false step. I don't want you to react to this. We'll react to it later. Um, but if that happens, I need you to, to just continue the effort that you've been giving us So you know throughout this process and help whoever is in charge. Um, so. I knew that the statement um, was going to haunt me, as it did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, but it, it also made a tremendous difference. When when did you feel like there was hope for the uh, people in the hurricane zone in South Dade?
1: I think when I made the statement and I left, in about two hours, the phones you couldn't get a call in uh, or out. Again, and it was people all over calling in, thanking us, people from out of the area saying, what do you need, we're coming down. Um, It just, it started an almost immediate flow of resources Mm -hmm. and commitment of resources and, and people who controlled significant resources calling us and saying, what do you need us to bring? We're coming.
0: Yeah, the, well, when I was watching television, actually, because I didn't go on then, I was on noon to midnight, although I was in the television station um, watching the, the news conference, and I remember thinking, well, this is this is so important. And then later that day, the, the first C5A landed at Opelaka, yeah. and I was on the set there with Tony Segreto, and, and I remember tears were coming out of my eyes, you know, thinking maybe this is something maybe finally there's you know the, the people and the material and and communications and food and support and everything else are finally going to come to south age uh, you know that and, was and the I for me.
1: one of the first signs of that was um within probably we already had some but we ended up with a fleet of helicopters because you couldn't get around if you mm-hmm. remember everything was an endless traffic jam and so we had more and more helicopters and could uh, go from the EOC to the airport uh, or go which is where the feds had set up their center and we could get into South Dade and we began to see these resources coming in and we were working with them where do you want us to set up and you know getting them plugged in with with other resources that had come in to be able to expand uh, their base of operations because again people couldn't travel far you really needed to get the resources in. They couldn't drive around; mostly their cars were damaged or destroyed. There was so much debris you couldn't drive very far anyway. And if you did, your tires were gone very quickly. Um, so we began to, as you as you know, because you were up in a in helicopters a lot, mm-hmm. you know, you began to see these pockets start to come together of resources where there had been nothing, and that was encouraging. I know that we had hope that resources were coming in. But it really took a while f- when they came in um, for them to set up and be able to expand out. So it was probably another 24 to 36 hours. We started to get some military in. Of course, they had to mobilize and mm-hmm. deploy. But I think probably nothing made us feel more secure because, you know, sec- if you recall, security was a Extraordinary issue.
0: Yeah, and it really took until that following Sunday before the military had security. And then they expanded out. I mean, they were setting up at Harris Field and Homestead and the tent city there and food for the residents that were still there. And And and, then, uh, you know, and then they expanded out in the, like you said, the parking lots in Best Buy stores that were obliterated or shopping centers that were obliterated. The parking lots became the, the resource centers for for people that could find them, people that could figure out where the, where things were.
1: And finally we could set up antennas and there was more communication. Um, we had feeding sites, people began to get information. Uh, the Miami Herald did an amazing job they did, yes. of putting together uh, a newspaper to get down there every day and to dist- distribute throughout South Dade at no cost. And what was amazing is that they would get all of the information that people needed and update it every single day. And then the media communicating helped. And then as soon as we had enough folks down there that had their own communication system, then they were getting briefed and they could share that uh, with the public as well. But it was really, really rough going that first five or six days.
0: Yeah, it, yeah. It took, it took into the next week really before there was any kind of a, System And it was really because the military was there and we had enough resources and enough people to keep control of it and, and keep and it And they do this.
1: They know how yeah. to do this. Yeah, you know? they know how to do it. They
0: come, come, they come equipped with communications, security, and food, and, uh, and everything you need to exist, you know, from starting from zero. So, One of
1: the things about the military, though, I'd like to share is that mm-hmm. there were a lot of those young guys who honestly, they worked like dogs through the week in that incredible heat mm-hmm. and humidity. And then they'd have their day off and they just go find somebody to help and they would work the entire day yeah. off helping people as well. So, I mean, they were so selfless that um, it was just beautiful to see how kind and generous and helpful and good and compassionate they were with the people down there. It was a beautiful thing to watch.
0: Yeah, I was, uh, I, I flew down there uh, with John Sakata actually, they, they were entertaining the the troops and and it was part of the concert that that uh, Laurie and Emilio Estefan put on at yeah at Joe Robbie Stadium Dolphin Stadium and mm-hmm. and uh, they flew John and I uh, John and me down to, to Homestead and it was just it was just fantastic to you know do something for the troops I mean the whole thing was surreal of course the the concert and and whatnot but it was uh, you know. It was the whole thing was a a moment in time. I hope, obviously, that we never see something like this before. But it was life changing. How how did Andrew change your life?
1: Oh, it changed it in just about every way it could possibly change it. In fact, um, there there were just things about Andrew that it took me years to even talk about. Um, First time I went down to South Day, this literally I didn't start talk. I didn't share this with a friend or anybody until probably around six or seven years ago. But for me, one of the worst moments was the first uh, night helicopter flight um, that I took into South Dade. And we had to come back because essentially we were being shot at. Mm -hmm. Didn't make it any easier. Mm -hmm. Um, So they turned around and came back and they uh, couldn't land in the area behind the communications center in EOC, because if you recall, that was an old pauper's graveyard. Mm, So there wasn't a free place place for for a helicopter to land. Mm. So what they decided to do was to go down as low as they possibly could get. And there were some guys on the ground, some folks who were going to help me. I would climb down as far as I could and jump down the rest of the way. Well, when I did, and I landed on the grass, I was on top of an old pauper's grave and the ground gave way and I fell into a grave. What? And the, I know it was just awful. I've got dirt all over me and in my mouth and I've fallen into this grave and everything is dark and weird. And uh, the guys ran over and they pulled me out of there. But that was just a moment I couldn't talk about for years. (laughs) (laughs) So many strange things. One of the great things about Hurricane Andrew is we had been working, as you know, you were part of the effort after Hugo, um, to try to change the State Emergency Management Act, the Florida Emergency Preparedness Association, different mm-hmm. commissions. Um, we had been working to try to strengthen the emergency management programs in the, st- in the state, create a base of resources, um, and have the resources that we needed to be realistically prepared in our communities. And that finally did occur the spring after Andrew, even after Andrew, the legislature said, well, this is, you know, one in 10,000 year event, this will never happen again. We don't need to allocate money. So they were still not doing that. And we had that what they call the uh, winter storm of the century that spring in the Gulf. Yeah,
0: superstorm. And yeah. it
1: came the superstorm, and it came in and drowned a lot of people on the west coast.
0: Oh, you're right. The storm yeah. of the century it was. It was called the storm of the yeah. century. That storm wasn't the, the super storm. That was yeah. the storm of the century. Right? Well.
1: Yeah. Um, but that killed a lot of people. I mean, literally drowned in their beds.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, up in up south Bloom. of Tallahassee, up there um, in Taylor yeah. County, yeah.
1: And uh, Elaine Bloom. Uh, Took off and buttonholed everybody, and they passed it. Mm-hmm. So they realized, no, this isn't just a, a bizarre event that's likely never to occur again in our lifetime. Um, here's the second event within a short period of time. So they passed that. So that did create um, funding opportunities. It created resources. Um, certainly, of course, I got electrocuted the Sunday after Andrew in and the EOC when uh, when they changed. Uh, Generators and I hadn't heard the warning because I'd just come out of a shower, went to plug in the hair blower, generator gets changed, and boom. So um, that certainly left me with a lot of lingering health issues that it took a long time to ultimately um, heal. I mean, immediately I had a lot of burned organs and a lot of fractures in my upper body, um, but I kept working, so it didn't make any difference. I never
0: Um, knew that. I never, I never. didn't know about that no i didn't know about well if i did i blocked it out because i don't you know 30 years later i guess a lot of other things come in but no i don't remember that at all oh my god
1: you know like all of us i lost friends and Mm -hmm. people who left the area right um and i worked for about 80 hours a week for about three years until i got something that they called adrenal washout and Mm -hmm. i just literally was told here you go you're going to have a heart attack or a stroke. You need to take some time off and rest because that's the only hope you have of not dying within the next year. Um, and then when I began to come back from that, I just decided I didn't care what I did, but I did not want to do emergency mm-hmm. management for a while. So there were other things I'd always wanted to do, and I went off and did them, mm-hmm. and uh, it was great. And I had I've had a I've had a lot of challenges because of this, and I've had a lot of amazing opportunities. Um, no regrets, and I'd do it all over again.
0: Yeah, it's a,
1: but Nobody, I don't think anybody ever loved Miami the way I did. Absolutely yeah. love the place, and I would have, literally, you know, fallen on oh, my spear for it.
0: It was. Uh, it was a time. It was just. I mean, the, the you know the folks that that uh, went through it you know their life revolves around it it's before andrew and after andrew everybody you talked to yes, that you know, was that was there and and either worked in government or worked in you know first responders or police or whoever they were or uh, lived in south day i mean they. and i think we forget it. sometimes
1: the toll it took on everybody mm-hmm. yeah the the crime the mm-hmm. child abuse the alcoholism the drug use the divorce rate. Mm-hmm. There were, you know, the problems with kids in school. Um, yeah, the trauma,
0: was... kids that every time there'd be a thunderstorm, the the trauma that that uh, lingered. And we in fact, we had, I don't remember how often child psychologists on television, mm-hmm. you know, talking about it and how important that was that that parents address that with their children. And so, because anybody that went through it was terrorized.
1: Well, they were, and you know, it's that whole thing of re-traumatizing. So, you know, when you live in a place where you've had an event like that, and there has been such profound trauma, to almost everybody, um, then you go through it year after year, um, the fear of that occurring again, Mm -hmm. and the loss of confidence that you're going to be helped that you're going to get through it. Um, I think that was the worst part of it if, if the response had been better, and quicker. Then there might have been less trauma, but I think the sense of abandonment and all of that was for the children. Um, you know, they saw their parents literally fall apart. So that that changes a child's sense of safety in the world.
0: Yeah, um, I agree with you. Totally agree. Well, Kate, it's just so great to see you again, and, and uh, it's wonderful to see to you. you. And, and thanks so much for. Being on with me today.
1: Well, thanks so much for all that you've done. Because you know, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, you know that you were the only one who was left on the air to help people through this um, was just a miracle. Because you were the one who had done your homework and knew the evacuation zones and the plans and what people needed to do and how to get them through the storm. And you stayed, you stayed calm. And I've seen all the videos too. I mean, we know where you were sitting and what it was like (laughs) in the building you were in. Um, and I think that was powerful as well, but you did get people through the storm, and they'll love you forever for that in Dade County.
0: Well, you know, they the uh, people ask me, well, what are the lessons of, of Hurricane Andrew? And and my personally, the thing I experienced was the preparation counts. Right, preparation yep. works. Right, the, the the fact that we're talking today, and the people are calling me up that want to talk about. Andrew, thirty years later, is because we prepared as the television station—not just me, I did—but but so did people that ran the television station wanted to prepare, where the community and the political leadership really didn't want to prepare. They they didn't want to spend the money, but uh, you know the. I have are- friends.
1: I have friends that no matter where I've been, when it gets to be August, September, and a storm threatens Miami, all of a sudden I'll hear from them. I mean, <laughs> I've heard from them since the last yes. hurricane season. What do you think? What mm-hmm. do you think I should be doing? Right. Um, and they know what to do. But again, I think people just need that reassurance and somehow or other um, that connection remains.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and they, they want to be led through the event. They want they want to know step-by-step step what, what to expect next, yeah. All right, Kate. Be well. Hope to see you soon.
1: You too. All right. Take care.
0: Bye-bye. And I'll be right back in just a moment. And welcome back. The night before Kate Hale stood up and put a shock in the system, When I got off the anchor desk at midnight I remember thinking how can the southern part of Dade County ever recover? The news was full of horror stories. People at their wit's end with looting and shooting and living in a hopefully dry corner of their house or a neighbor's garage. Then that following morning I was watching the news conference when Kate had had enough which started things in motion. It became politically untenable for Washington not to come to the rescue. It was one of those moments, and we knew it when we saw it. Thanks to Bob Sheets and Kate Hale for being part of this special podcast. It's been wonderful reconnecting with both of them after so many years. On the next podcast, we're going to talk about the big New England hurricanes and every other kind of weather that goes on there with the chief meteorologist of WBZ-TV in Boston, Eric Fisher. Eric wrote a great book called The Mighty Storms of New England. I'll talk with Eric coming up next week. Be sure to subscribe to our Tracking the Tropics podcast so you always get an alert when a new podcast is posted. And remember to download the Fox Weather app. First, you can get your forecast without having a bunch of ads popping up all the time. And you can watch a live stream of Fox Weather on your phone or your iPad by just tapping in the upper right of the app. And you can watch Fox Weather at foxweather.com or on the Roku channel, YouTube channel, Amazon Fire, Fios TV, and lots of other platforms. So I'll see you there on the Fox Weather stream when the tropics are active. And follow me on Twitter at BNorcross and on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Brian Norcross. Be well and stay informed.